Greetings and welcome to another series from White's Run Baptist Church. I am Pastor Eric Newcomer and I'll be taking you through a new series called Witnesses of the King. This series will focus on the book of Acts and will bring us a great many teachings through this great book of the Bible. And I'm very excited for what we're going to learn here because in the book of Acts, we have the account of the first witnesses of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do is we're going to learn what it is that they saw and what they did, how Jesus built his church through the power of the Holy Spirit through people like us. We're going to see that by seeing and learning these things and this same power, we're going to see we too have and that we will become his witnesses to a world today not unlike the world God was reaching during the account of the book of Acts. So we're going to learn how this happened. How is it that a, a small movement that happened in a, in a backwards part of the Roman Empire, uh, whose leader was crucified, turned into a worldwide movement that we know to this very day, almost 2,000 years later. How is it that it went from a band of, of small, a small band of fearful disciples hiding out after the crucifixion of their leader to a large group of bold witnesses that were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that were witnesses even through persecution, even unto their deaths? How is it that we went from a group of unlearned fishermen out of this defunct nation of Israel to a church consisting of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and socioeconomic demographic. How does that happen? How do we go from a movement that was initially dated with reference to the rule of the local governor of the province in which it originated to the fact that now we measure all things and rate all things and time all things according to a calendar that has been adjusted around the leader of this movement, Jesus Christ. How is this happening and still happening to this day? Well, we're going to learn how this began, how it initially happened. We're going to receive great encouragement as we see God empower his people to spread the gospel and to reap a harvest in a world not too different from our own. We're going to learn for ourselves new skills as we see what the early apostles taught and how they addressed things in the very diverse world that they took this gospel into. We're going to see in this book certain things that we should imitate and certain things that we should merely observe, and we're going to learn how to tell the difference. We're going to talk about speaking in tongues. We're going to talk about various doctrines. We're going to talk about the, the construction of the church and how the church is organized and how we're supposed to interact with the culture and with the state. We're going to be encouraged. We're going to be equipped to better reach our world. We'll see how Jesus Christ provides for his church, how he disciplines his church, how he leads his church, and how he is ultimately glorified in his church. And we're going to begin here in the book of Acts chapter 1. We're going to take a close look at verses 1 through 11, and we're going to find 
right where the Gospels left off. Now, the first thing we'll notice is that Acts is a second volume of Luke's work. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had appeared many times to the disciples. He was teaching them. He was showing them the true nature of his resurrection. And most importantly, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and how they proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die and then on the third day be raised. And he revealed that they would be his witnesses, that they would go into the world and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. So let's go to the scriptures and let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Here's what we're going to find there. It says this, In the first book, Luke writes, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Well, let's begin fittingly with a word of prayer. Father God, you did these things by your great power. By your spirit, Lord, you accomplish these things in your servants. And so this day we ask you by your spirit to accomplish in us what you will through this teaching, through your word. Show us, Lord, how we ought to be, how we ought to serve, and indeed how we ought to glorify your name in all that we do. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us together for this time. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the encouragement of your servant, Luke, whom you had write these things for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several things should stand out to us. (laughs) There's a lot in these verses and a lot I want to cover. I would want to talk to you about who Theophilus may have been. We don't really know. I would want to talk to you all about Luke and his purposes uh, for writing the gospel and the book of Acts, but uh, we don't simply have time to cover those things. Instead, what I want to focus on is what is the 
content of this book. What do we actually learn here? And we're going to kick this off by pointing out many of the themes that we're going to come back to again and again in the book of Acts. I've identified seven key elements that I want to highlight through our study. Now, any number of people could make a number of different lists about what they think is important from the book of Acts, but I've chosen seven that we want to take a look at as we proceed through this great book. Now, we'll look at many other things as well. And when all is said and done, we'll say that we have seen hundreds of things in the book of Acts. But these elements I have chosen as foundational. These are things that the church is still built firmly on today. That is the true church practicing according to the Spirit of God. And this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the commission. We're going to look at the resurrection. We're going to look at the teaching of the church, the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the significance of the ascension and the significance of the return of Christ. And we're going to look at the elements of the church itself. We're going to make somewhat a study of the church. So those are the seven elements. And hopefully those will be helpful to you as a guide as we go through here. The first one I want to talk about is this commission, or what some call the Great Commission, that Jesus gave to his disciples uh, to this day. He says in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. Now you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses. And then an outline is given. This is really an outline for the book, is he says, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this is roughly an outline of the book of Acts because it all begins with all the action in Jerusalem. Then some persecution comes and people are pushed out to the surrounding area of Judea and ultimately Samaria. And then the the balance of the book of Acts, most of the book of Acts is about this going to all the different nations in the Mediterranean area. And so indeed, this serves as an outline, but this is part of the commission. It's stated in various ways at the end of each gospel, covers some aspect of this. And this one, this one Jesus, who had proven himself to be the Son of God, he had proven himself to be the Christ. He is indeed the author of life, and he is the victor over death, having proven his resurrection to his disciples. He gave them a command, a fact. He says, you will be my witnesses. And several times he reiterated this over the some 40 days that he saw them. And this indeed was going to be the Great Commission. Matthew has a a very thoroughgoing uh, view of this when he says this about it. Jesus said, came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we're going to see this as a reality as we study the book of Acts. He is indeed with his church. He indeed has all authority because this is going to be brought before kings and his people are going to defy kings and the orders of governing authorities in order to spread this gospel. He proves all this to be true and his disciples faithfully carry it out. 
Now, the next foundational element I want to take a look at is the resurrection itself, as he mentions there uh, in Acts 1-3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Now, the disciples had a lot of ideas of how this Messiah thing was going to work out. Indeed, one of the themes of the Gospels is Jesus failing to meet the worldly expectations of what the Messiah would be like. He kind of broke all their expectations, turned them upside down. Uh, what he came to do was far greater than what anyone could have imagined. And therefore, the crucifixion and the resurrection serve for the disciples as a great reset because all their ideas and all their conceptions of what Messiah would do and how he would come and reign over Israel and how the kingdom would be reestablished, the kingdom and the throne of David, that was all turned on its head when all of a sudden this one that they thought was the Christ was crucified. There was no conception among them at that point, how is this going to work now that he's been crucified? But once the resurrection came, he opened their minds to the necessity of these things from the scriptures. Look how Luke records this in his gospel. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And look what it says in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is why we pray at the beginning of these sermons for God to open our minds to what the scripture says, because this is what is required. Even when uh, Peter seemed to have figured out that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus commended him saying this, you know, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So he opens her mind to understand these things, and he says this, he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. He showed them how these things were, uh, how this had to be. And it changed everything for how the disciples understood Jesus and their own mission. More importantly, the resurrection was this great testimony to the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Before, long before he was crucified, he said, I have the authority or I have the power to lay my life down and the authority to pick it up again. And he proved it by doing exactly that and then showing it to them by many proofs. Uh, at the end of Luke, he, we see that he ate with them, he walked with them, he touched them, he proved it to his disciples. He appeared to as many as 500 at a time because it was going to be necessary for them to be able to refute the claims of those who were going to suggest that, oh, Jesus didn't really rise, a disciple stole the body, or whatever other nonsense would come, and indeed still comes to this day. These were witnesses of these things. And in fact, their actions can only be explained by there having been a resurrection. Men will die for many good causes, but these men died for the truth of the resurrection. And indeed, men will die for many things, but not for a lie. They will turn and run if they are found in a lie. They did not. And indeed, 
this is another testimony to the truth of the the resurrection. The resurrection becomes a central truth of the gospel, a most basic foundational things that if you are to discuss at all what Christianity is, who Jesus Christ was, the resurrection has to be central to that discussion. In Romans 10, where we have a formula for salvation, it says if you believe in your heart, um, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is a foundational belief. As Paul summarizes what the gospel is in just eight short verses at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, he includes a resurrection and a great deal of material about the appearances. It was an essential emphasis in their early ministry, and this is something that we're going to see throughout the sermons that we come to in the book of Acts. At the time that Jesus came, there had been many false Christs. There had been many insurrectionists. There had been many people come along that they claimed what were the Christ, and these men came and they went. And we're going to see that even discussed here in the book of Acts. The resurrection of Jesus was incredibly important because it was the most magnificent thing. It separated him from all the fakes. And it's the same with us today. It is the resurrection that sets him apart from all the fakes. Uh, Confucius is dead. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. L. Ron Hubbard is dead. Anybody else in history that is claimed to be somebody, they have all come and gone. They remain dead. But Jesus is alive. And so the resurrection is one of the foundational elements of what is used in the teaching of the early church to spread this great gospel of Jesus Christ. The next thing is the teaching in general of the early church is an important thing. And central in the book of Acts was this teaching. In order to be witnesses, you have a story to tell. And not only that, the clear implication was that those who believed become the storytellers. In other words, the disciples were told to go and make disciples. This means that they would have to be taught all that Jesus did, and this was part of the commission, Jesus commanded them to go and teach all the, and to observe all the things that Jesus taught. They were teaching converts to observe all that Jesus commanded. And this first mention of this dedication to this teaching comes very early after the first sermon in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. Uh, it is there is a summary at the end of chapter 2 about what the early church was doing. Therefore, after this first sermon, after more than 3,000 converts were, were part of this movement now, and the very first thing mentioned, the first order of business, so to speak, is that they were dedicated to the apostles' teaching. True Christianity is a movement of the whole person, including the intellect. And so teaching is central to this movement and right teaching is essential to this movement. And what we're going to see here in the book of Acts is much of what was taught, but we're going to see more. We're going to see that there's some disagreements, that some corrections have to be made. We're going to see how they handled these differences of opinion in theology. And we're going to see by what standards and practices they used for correction of teaching.
The next major element is the Holy Spirit. If we look back there in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4, um, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse 8, as part of this commission that he speaks of, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. John the Baptist had announced this. that Before Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist announced that there would be a future baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was baptizing with water, but he was saying, no more significantly, one's going to come after me who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, the fire spoke of judgment that is given to Christ, but the Holy Spirit speaks of what he would do for his church. Jesus taught about the coming of the Holy Spirit extensively in John chapters 14 and 16, and a bit in 15 as well. And I'll refer you to those for the details. But the question is, concerning the Holy Spirit, why is this so important? Well, this is an important theme of Acts, and I believe one of the most central themes of the book of Acts is the work of the Holy Spirit, because this is not a movement of men. The world will try to say that the disciples were just inspired by Jesus, his teaching, his good example, and they desired to spread his message. And then they made up, they invented this thing about the resurrection to give him credibility. Now, this is indeed what we've seen when people spread the teachings of people such as Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad or Dr. Phil or Oprah is that they're simply inspired by these good ideas that were somehow helpful to them, and they endeavor to go make others aware of them. But this is not the case with the early church. It's a movement of God himself. It's proven by the fact that every effort was made to extinguish this movement, and yet it persisted, and people followed and pushed and pressed this movement to their own deaths. And why is that important? Why is that a proof of this? Because there are people that will die for other movements as well. Well, it's even stated here in the book of Acts that, hey, if this is a movement of men, it'll go away. But if this is something of God, it will persist. Will be, there'll be nothing we can do to stop it. And indeed, even this day, there are countries, there are nations on the earth whose governments try to stamp out Christianity and it tends to thrive in those circumstances. We look at what's going on in China, where we look at what's going on in Iran, where there's many converts and they face persecution and death continually. And in various places of the world and parts of Africa and other places, there is persecution, but the teaching persists because it is powered by the Holy Spirit of God. It is God breaking into the world with his truth. It is the kingdom of God coming and overthrowing the kingdoms of men. Let this be a sign to you that if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, this movement that has come in and that has overthrown governments of the world and that persists day after day, outlasting all of them, outlasting all those who have ever tried to stamp it out. This is a coming kingdom and Jesus will come to judge the world in truth. 
Now, this is the way God designed it from the beginning. Look what it says in Zechariah 4, 6. In the Old Testament, this is what God predicts about this coming movement uh, of the church, this new covenant that would come. He says to Zerubbabel, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is how he is going to establish these things, by his spirit. We will see then in the book of Acts, the people of God, not just having the spirit of God, but occasionally filled with this spirit to do the work of God that is in this great book. We will see this movement is so profound that only an act of God can explain what has happened and is happening to this very day. The Holy Spirit is the main character here, and his work is profound. The next profound and important foundational theme that runs through this is concerning the ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus. This uh, is accounted here in the verses we looked at, particularly in verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus ascended into heaven. He visibly went up, lifted into the air, then engulfed in a cloud. Now this is significant because in the Old Testament, the cloud was the Shekinah glory of God. It was reminiscent of the, the glory of God, indicative of his presence and his glory. And here Jesus goes up and he's taken into a cloud and the angels there say, you know, why are you looking up into heaven? He will come in the same way. And sure enough, we have accounted very clearly, he is going to come in the clouds. He's going to come in the clouds of heaven. He didn't just vanish. They had to know that Jesus still existed. So he was taken up from their presence visibly. They saw him go. He didn't just walk out and walk down the road and, and leave one day. No, it was clear that he was going as, as every conception of heaven being above the earth, which we know that it's really probably transdimensional, but indeed it's, it's a greater thing. It was always considered above. It was always considered greater. It was always associated with the sky or the heavens or the stars. It is beyond. And he is taken up in this way to show that indeed he was, that he existed and that he still exists. He was not a phantom. He was not an apparition. He was not a mere temporary manifestation of God, but an eternal person of the Godhead. And he, by going up physically and bodily, is showing, I am going and I am continuing. I still am. So that he could fulfill the promise that's found in Matthew 16, 18, where he says, I will build my church. He hasn't disappeared. The time of Jesus is not over. He is still reigning from heaven. The concept of the Trinity, you can see how the concept of the Trinity is essential to understanding. It is essential to knowing that Jesus is truly divine and he remains distinct among the Godhead as the one reigning from heaven over his church. He is still at work. He sends the Holy Spirit as he describes in the, the Gospel of John in chapter 16, which apparently he could not do while he was here. 
He is now our interceding high priest. What it says in the book of Hebrews about what he is doing right now. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, this is a verse you probably heard, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This only makes sense with a risen Christ who is actively working from the throne of God, who is actively giving out grace and mercy to us in time of need because he is there seated at the right hand of the Father working for his, for his church. He works for his church in part by doing this, by confirming the message that the apostles preach with the accompanying signs. When he was here, he was one man in one place at one time. In heaven, having sent the Spirit, he is all of his people in all the earth all the time. That's why we are called the body of Christ. And he is there now preparing a place for his people. And he says, and if I prepare a place, I will come and I will bring you to be with me forever. This is the ascension. And this is a foundational element And it leads us right to the return because indeed he is preparing a place. He is going to return. And according to the angels that spoke to the disciples on that day, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Boy, that's powerfully important that this is this eminent return of Jesus. He taught so clearly that he would return. And the teaching of the early church is the truth that he will return. It was an emphasis in the book of Acts that this period of time in which we presently live has a definite end fixed by God, at which time he will judge the living and the dead. Look what it says in Acts 10.42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And as Paul argued in the city of Athens to people in Acts 17.31, he says, He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this, He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus will return. Jesus will judge. There's such an emphasis on in the early church on this great truth of his return that when we want to study the return of Christ, we have to bring in the Thessalonian letters because those two letters have so much great detail about this return of Christ. And when we read in the account of the book of Acts, about Paul's visit to Thessalonica, we find out he only preached three Sabbaths in the synagogue before people came from another town following Paul, persecuting him, and drove him out of town. In other words, Paul was there a maximum of three weeks and taught them many things about the return of Christ and the events leading up to it. Now his trip was cut short, so he had to write a couple letters to correct some misunderstandings they had. But he was teaching this 
in their very first days of being a Christian. This great truth of the return of Jesus Christ drove the early church with urgency to spread the gospel. And here we are, do you understand, two, almost 2,000 years later, how much more should this coming return of Christ be an urgency in our hearts to spread this gospel as quickly as we can? Because we don't know when he's going to return, but we do know this. We are almost 2,000 years closer than they were, and they thought it was important. So finally, an underlying assumption of these foundational elements, something that's basically unstated, and it's plain as this. The Bible, you'll notice, never proves God. It never endeavors to say, by the way, there's a God. I mean, it just begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It takes God as an underlying assumption. The same is true in the book of Acts with the concept of the church. The church is described, the church is revealed, it is shown, it is, it is expounded on what the church is and what it does in the book of Acts, but it never argues that there must be a church, that there is a church. It is taken as an underlying critical assumption to everything else that is taught. The church is important. And if we look at the scriptures that we read, if you look at Jesus' address to them, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. And he said, you heard from me, that's a plural, for John baptized with water, but you, plural, will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Everything that Jesus addresses to them is in the plural. He addresses them in a group. He assumes that they are going to carry this out together in unity. And in fact, in John chapter 13, he puts a, a mark on the people of God. He says, they're going to know you by this mark. What's the mark? By this, that you love one another. And that can only be done in fellowship. So the whole book of Acts has uh, as a theme throughout it, the unity, the gathered togetherness of the church. The phrase with one accord occurs five times. But like I said, it is an emphasis throughout this book. It was a unified people. The resurrection appearances, after the resurrection appearances, and after Jesus ascends, these, these people are found worshiping together at the temple. They're found praying in the upper room together, as we'll look at next time. And they're meeting together with great joy. This is an amazing unity because of their amazing diversity. And you have to think about how these things started. You have to bring into the, the uh, discussion here the end of the Gospels. Because think about this, Peter had denied Jesus. But John, who was with him, who actually took Peter to the, uh, the, the house of the high priest, John was faithful all the way to stand at the cross and was even entrusted by the Lord Jesus with his mother Mary. So why was there not a power conflict between John and Peter? Why wasn't John like, well, you denied the Christ. You can't be in charge. I should be in charge. And after all, he entrusted Mary to me. 
And Peter, he doesn't argue with John. And, hey, look, buddy, you, uh, you're the one who took me to that house. It's your fault that I denied the Christ and everything else. And you always were a favorite of his. And, and, you know, who are you to speak to me like this? None of that happens. There's no power struggle between them. There's also no power struggle here with the family of Jesus because in all other movements, uh, the movements of men, it's generally the family that takes over and continues with things. James, a brother of Jesus, he didn't believe or follow Jesus before his resurrection. None of his brothers did. But James becomes the undisputed leader of the church at Jerusalem, and there's no argument about a power struggle or anything like this. Other than James' leadership, Jesus' family didn't seek any particular preference. They were not venerated. They were not worshipped. They were not treated special because they were the family of Jesus. The only mention, in fact, of Mary is here in chapter 1, and she's among those who are in the upper room praying together. She's not seen teaching. She's not seen leading or being worshipped or being co-redemptrix with Jesus. The other aspect of their diversity is this. Many of them were unlearned fishermen, and yet there were educated Pharisees and leaders among them. The Pharisees among them are mentioned in the book of Acts and in the letters. Nicodemus was one of those. Joseph of Arimathea was another great leader that was part of this movement, and yet he didn't struggle with these unlearned fishermen for control of this movement. Their money, their worldly status, earned them no place in the church. They were among equals from the least to the greatest in worldly terms. This is how it is to this day in the true church, in faithful churches. What you find is that the differences between us, the socioeconomic differences that the world imposes upon us, disappear at the doors of the church, so to speak. The matter was settled among them. Who was going to be the greatest? You remember the disciples were arguing. They're on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to be crucified. He's told them they're not getting it. They're not accepting it. And on the way, they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Do you realize that argument was completely settled once and for all when the greatest was crucified and raised from the dead? They were all done talking about that because they all fell away in one way or another. They all failed one way or another. But Jesus was faithful to take the cup that the Father had for him and drink it to the very dregs. Now there's leaders that we will see in this book. There are those that are recognized as leaders, established, appointed as leaders, but they're chosen by God and then recognized by all. We're going to see the great necessity of the church, the balance that it brings, the accountability it provides, the consistency that it provides to preserve the truth and to correct itself. See, this book of Acts proves that there are no rogue Christians, no hermits, no mavericks. I like to say there are no maverick Christians. The word maverick, comes from the name of a man named Samuel Maverick. He was a Texas rancher, and he was known for not branding his cattle. Uh, 
In those days, everyone branded their cattle. That, that was how they were identified. The, there'd be a mark on them, burned into their skin like a tattoo, and that would be identifiable to their owner. Maverick was called a maverick because he didn't brand his, because he figured, why should I brand them? Everyone else brands their cattle. If it's unbranded, it's mine. <laughs> But the truth is, the whole idea was that if it is not branded, it is not owned. It is therefore a maverick. And that's what we say. There are no maverick Christians. There's no one out there worshiping, following Christ without being connected to his people. Now, some might say and might argue, well, I follow Jesus, but I don't go to church. I don't find it necessary or whatever. I assure you, (laughs) chances are great that this person will hear those words from Christ that we would all dread to hear, away from me, I never knew you. So those are the foundational elements, and I hope you find those things helpful, the commission, the resurrection, the teaching, the Holy Spirit, the ascension, the return, and the church. And you'll recognize that none of those did I go into great detail. I wanted to present these to you as you read through the book of Acts which I pray that you'll do time and time again as we go through this series. Look for these things. Look how these are central to this because these elements are central to what the church does to this very day. It doesn't change. And so we want to see those things and we want to understand those things. And as we go through the series, we'll expound these things in greater detail. We'll learn a great deal together. So I want to give you this encouragement as we wrap this up here. I want to give you this this, uh, wonderful encouragement that uh, indeed we have. I want you to understand that as we come to the book of Acts, we come to a book that is in a context. You'll pick up your Bible and you'll note, I don't have one handy that I can pick up, but, but you'll note that a great deal of the Bible occurs before the book of Acts. The book of Acts comes with that context. There have been promises since the garden, since Genesis chapter 3, way back there in the beginning of the Bible. And there have been centuries of groundwork laid by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Father. There has been the law given to the nation of Israel, a nation called, a nation redeemed out of bondage, a nation established in the world at the crossroads of the world. And they were sent prophets, and many of those prophets wrote their work. And then Jesus Christ came, and he taught, and he explained, and he was crucified and resurrected, and put it all in perspective for his disciples. And then he ascended. And I want you to understand that after those thousands of years, some 4,000 years of work, of God unfolding his salvation plan for mankind, what are the chances this plan is going to fail? Now, many will say in many ways, well, the church by and large has failed. Look at the world today. Look at our nation and these kind of things. Now, what we're going to find in the book of Acts is that this is exactly how Jesus said it would be. The world we live in right now today is the world we find as we open the pages of the book of Acts. Things have not changed except that millions upon millions upon millions of people have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And indeed, it has changed the world in many ways. But in many ways, human nature remains the same. The message remains the same. God remains the same. And as sure as Jesus Christ came the first time, as sure as he rose from the dead, he will return. And in the meantime, he will surely build his church. His kingdom will prevail. Look at the perfection of what God has accomplished to this point. This book of Acts is a story of victory. There's not any absence of difficulty or resistance. Well, there's plenty of that. There's plenty of drama to be found here. But one thing that we see is a persistent advance of the kingdom of God. So this is my invitation to you today. Let us together repent of our doubts, repent of our disobedience to spreading the gospel. Let Jesus open our minds to the truth like he opened the minds of the disciples and let us have the faith to embrace bearing witness to Jesus as the centerpiece of our lives because what we're going to see in the book of Acts is people forsaking every worldly good to obey this commission of Jesus Christ and why should it be any different for us today? Let this study of the book of Acts be a reset for us like the resurrection was for the disciples, like the coming of the Holy Spirit changed them from those who were cowering behind closed doors after his crucifixion to those who stood and boldly witnessed to the very people that crucified their Savior. Now, how are we going to see those things happen? We're going to prayerfully read the book of Acts together over and over again. We're going to prayerfully consider our part in the body of Christ, each of us individually, because while we are a called together body, each of us has a part to play. We're going to see some of those parts in the book of Acts. We're going to find ourselves there, and we're going to find out what our role is. And we're going to pray for compassion, the compassion that Jesus had as he looked on the people and prayed for workers for the harvest. And we're going to pray for boldness, the boldness that the disciples prayed for, that they could continue to go even under persecution. And we're going to pray for confidence that we too will be faithful to carry this truth. Let's pray. Father God, we praise your name this day. We thank you for bringing us together. We thank you for making yourself known in this world. We thank you for the great truths that you've shared and for bringing us the book of Acts. We pray now for confidence. We pray for conviction to obey you. We pray for boldness to act as the early church did and as many do to this day in the church to act in accord with your great truths to bring salvation to the nations. We praise you, Lord, for your great work that you are still doing. We ask you, Lord, to reveal it to us more and more and to make us useful for this task. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our time together. I certainly have. Now, read the book of Acts. Read it over and over again. Listen to it. You can find audio versions of it. If you listen to the book of Acts in a single sitting, it's shorter than most movies. But what you will find is you will be carried along by the narrative. Don't pause it. Don't chase rabbits. 
listen to it all the way through and you will be so greatly encouraged by getting the big picture of it and then week by week you and I'll dive into the details together. Contact us if you'd like. You can find us at whitesrun.org. You can email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. That is an email address that comes to real life people that will actually personally answer you. And so you don't have to worry about being put on some random mailing list or anything like that. We will actually answer your questions, your objections, your complaints, whatever it is that you have to send to us. Please send us and enjoy this series called Witnesses of the King. God bless you.